The following audio is brought to you by Summerside Community Church in London, Ontario. For more information on Summerside, visit us online at www.summersidechurch.ca. The title of uh, the message last week was Reject the Lies. And I covered Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, and the idea uh, in that passage there was that if you want to pursue God, uh, you need to use gospel truth and gospel promises to deal with the lies that we all fall prey to from time to time. I covered four of them last week. In the text, I'd encourage you, if you weren't here, to review that. Uh, we can, you can find that online. But do it as part of your spiritual prep for 2024. Now, the last verse I read last week ended in, with this idea of God's love for his people. It went like this. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want to continue on in that same passage, and I want to talk about that because I feel that if there's one final lie that needs to be dealt with by itself in one message, it's this, and it would sound like this. The fact that I can't feel God's love right now means he probably doesn't. Well, I I don't struggle with that, Leo. Maybe not. But the fact that you haven't in the past, the fact that you're not right now, doesn't mean that you will not hit a season of your life where you will be uh, very vulnerable to this lie. And I would just say from personal experience and also from reading the saints throughout church history, Uh, that our sense of God's presence and love for us, man, at times it is so powerful and it's palpable and it's like right there. There are other times in our walk where it's quiet and it's subtle. But there are also times where the cares of this world and the situations we find ourselves in, we end up saying or wondering, God, do you? Love me. Now, a little comment about the passage. We're going to read chapter 5 in Romans, verses 6 to 11. Uh, It feels a little repetitive. As you're reading it, you may find yourself going, didn't Paul just say that? And, or it sounds, you know, it sounds like he's cycling back through the same thing, but something's different. I, I, what, what's, what's going on here? Uh, let me give you the key to unlocking this entire passage for you. Uh, and it's in verse eight, the first half. And it's this, it's simply this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Paul will spend six verses showing you how God demonstrates, a better translation would be proves, how God goes out of his way to prove to you just how vast and 
broad his love is for it, for you. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to cycle through that one theme three times for impact and for clarity. And I'm very thankful that he does because I don't know about you, but I'm pretty thick-headed. So I need that. And every time he does this cycling through, he, he kind of says the same things. Let me summarize what he does. He, he says what you were. He says what Christ did. And then he tells us how that should assure you. And by the time we're done today, really, none of us should be walking out of here going, you know, I don't think God did enough to prove to me that he loves me. And one of the things I'm looking forward to today with you is responding together uh, in communion because this entire passage sets, that, set, sets it up so well. So let's start off with this first idea. If you're taking notes, jot this down. God has proven his love to me by a radical sacrifice. Verse 6 and 7, let me read it. You see... At just the right time, while we were still powerless, God died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Okay, Um, unless you understand just how radical the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is, I mean... It's unexplainable, it's unfair, it's undeserved, this sacrifice. If you don't grasp it, God's love will not grip you. Now, notice in the text, he he, kind of says, and he's going to say it a lot, when we were still, or while we were still, to kind of point us to where we were at, Notice he uses these words, powerless and ungodly, to describe us before we knew Jesus, before justification. Completely powerless, unable to help ourselves in any way, to do anything about our condition. And I want to focus in on that word for a moment. Have you ever been in a place in your life where you just suddenly realized you were completely powerless in a bad situation? I mean, like you had nothing. Nothing, couldn't do it, didn't know what to do. September 11th, 2001, 9-11, was the last day I saw my dad alive. Surreal, really, when I think about it. I mean, it changed the world, impacted the United States, of course, but it it changed all of us in some way. But little did I know how significant that day would be for me personally. Now, we're we're getting to know each other sort of as congregation and pastor. And I, as I was going through this passage this week, I just, just felt prompted to share this story in my life. Dad was 60. And if you met him, I mean, he looked so fit, so healthy, and a boundless energy for Jesus, and just as a human being. I was 32 year old, years old on that last day. 
Uh, I was uh, a tired young father and new pastor, and I was close to burnout, and he was there to encourage me. And, and you have to understand this, but my dad, he was a dentist for like way too long and uh, retired in his late 50s to pursue his dream. You know what his dream was? He wanted to be a, a prison chaplain. And the Lord led him down to Florida where he was serving in a maximum security jail. And so they were up visiting us on 9-11 before the attacks happened. And uh, we had just had our third child, Sarah, and that was the only day he saw her. My dad was the most significant man in my life. What an influencer as a dad, as a Christian leader, as a support, as a friend. And uh, after that day, they made their way back to Florida. Shortly after, I started to get some phone calls about this prolonged bronchitis and coughing uh, that my dad was dealing with, but he was not a complainer, so he didn't really talk about it much. Then I started to find out that it was a a kind of a weird pneumonia that just moved into early December. And, you know, we were worried, but we weren't on DEFCON alert kind of worry. You know what I'm talking about? Like we, but I was starting to think in my head, should I be maybe making a trip down to go see him? And um, seven days later into early December, I suddenly find out that my dad's in the hospital in serious pain. But there's no diagnosis. No one knows what's going on. They're not telling us anything. And I'm really starting to get the feeling like, okay, it's time to book a flight. I should go be with my mom. And a couple days later, I got that call. In the middle of the night. Leo, dad's passed away. He's gone. The autopsy... Uh, later revealed that he had significant lung cancer. For you medical types, it was small cell carcinoma, which was odd given that he was not a smoker. Um, I flew down immediately to be with my mom to help with all the details. Um, There was a... um, volcano of emotion going on in me it was but you know i was also in problem solving mode so that problem solving gear was suppressing it well as i was trying to deal with that but the groundswell was certainly there i didn't even get a chance to say goodbye to my own dad never felt so powerless in my life Couldn't change the outcome, couldn't comfort him, couldn't understand how this could happen so quickly and we didn't know, couldn't process that day what it would actually mean for my kids to grow up without a granddad. Completely powerless. Now, I don't say that this morning for your pity. I say it because it's just a shadow, a shadow of the kind of powerless that Paul wants you to feel in this text, a shadow of what I once was before I came into a relationship with Jesus Christ, before being adopted as his son, 
Paul says, I was powerless, couldn't do a thing. He even adds, on top of that, ungodly. It's a picture of total inability to do anything. And if you read your Bible, you're going to find out that the Bible doesn't hold back. We find out that we were actually spiritually dead before Jesus in Ephesians. We find out that we were never seeking God, really, in Romans. Uh, we were. We find out that we didn't even have the ability to submit to God or please Him, Romans 8. That's us apart from Jesus. Now, notice Paul now moving to what Christ did. Verse 6 says that Christ died for people like that. Weak, helpless, captive, spiritually dead, ungodly. I mean, look at the middle of verse 6. It says, I love this one, at just the right time, then Christ died. This is exactly what Paul was saying in Galatians 4.4 when he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Look, the arrival of Jesus was not random. It was exactly the right time, the right moment to provide himself as the Passover lamb, perfect and spotless. Christ was crucified, brutalized by the Romans. It tells us in the text that it was also the Jews who screamed for his blood. But you know what? When you read this verse... What, 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 what you really find out is, and according to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, that this crucifixion was preordained by the plan of God. He planned it all. And in all of the Gospels in the Bible, Jesus is laying it down. And people are not picking it up. I mean, Mark 8, 31 is a great example. He began to teach them. That the Son of Man must suffer many things. And then he goes on to say, and then he's going to be killed. And then he goes on to say that he's going to rise again. Disciples kind of got it. Not until after the resurrection. On the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, when Jesus appeared after his resurrection to two men who did not recognize him. And they were trying to make sense of the crucifixion. Jesus is uh, talking to him and he says, uh, don't you get it? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory, Jesus says? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things about himself. Now, why should this assure you this morning? Look at verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good one, A good person, one would dare even to die. Here's why it should assure you. It should assure you because no one does this. No one does this. For those who aren't worthy, the radical nature of Jesus' death. You know, you can go on Google and you can look for uh, stories of heroic sacrificial, brave acts. You'll you'll find all sorts of them. Stories about soldiers, stories about uh, the police, firemen. You'll find stories about selfless acts of bravery where people save lives. I was reading this week, interestingly, uh, about um, a historical event, 1986. Um, It's the Chernobyl nuclear power plant disaster. Anyone remember that? 
it spewed massive amounts of radioactive material into the environment, killing several thousand. But did you know that it could have been a hundred times worse that day if it were not for three men, now known as the Chernobyl Suicide Squad, who willingly put on scuba gear and they dove into the pool of radioactive material around the nuclear reactor that was about to explode in order to open this floodgate valve and they did it knowing that they were going to die. So they go diving in this contaminated liquid to drain it out. That choice saved over a hundred, some say over a quarter million lives that day. And they did, in fact, die a few days later. There are stories like this on the internet. Bravery, heroism, sacrifice. But acts of bravery are nothing like choosing to stand in the place of someone else's execution like Jesus did. Paul's saying in verse 7, really what he's saying is, how many people do you know who would choose to actually take the punishment of of, of a really good person, a really righteous person? The answer, it's very rare. I mean, really rare. Not many signing up for that. So Paul's saying it's it's possible, but it's rare. But where really where he's going is, but to do that for a criminal who actually deserves the punishment they're going to get, that's inconceivable. And that is the basis for our assurance. To understand that is to understand Jesus. I mean, Jesus in John chapter 10 says this, I'm the good shepherd. Do you want to know why? Because I lay my life down for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my own life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Friends, God has proven his love to you by a radical sacrifice. So that's, that's the first thing you got to have. Now, he's going to say it again a different way, but here's the second thing. God has proven his love to me with an incredible deliverance. Verses 8 and 9, read along with me. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now, notice Paul going through the same three things different ways. Number one, what you were. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners. Underline that word if you like to do that in your Bible. God's proof isn't over. While we were still, that's looking back to the previous verse, in verse 6 we were what? Powerless. We were ungodly. Now Paul's adding a third. We're sinners. It means lawbreakers, transgressors. Some of you are like, you know, Leo, I'm, I'm a little tired of you pastors 
going on and on about my sin. I mean, I, I came to know Jesus, and then when I hear you talk about being a sinner, it feels like you're, 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 you're forcing me to look back on my past, and I want to look forward. Can we just move on? Paul's not doing this to cripple you. When Paul is saying this, for believers to understand about this, what he wants to do is increase your gratitude for Jesus. Don't ever lose track of that one of the best stories you know and sometimes they just are just sitting in the gospels there but in luke chapter 7 there's this story of jesus having dinner with simon the pharisee and there was a a large gathering and and a woman a prostitute heard jesus was there and so she shows up at this uh uh dinner uninvited let me assure you and she comes with a very costly bottle of oil at that time and all she can do the minute she gets into jesus's presence is she just can't she can't contain herself she just starts weeping and she gets on her knees and starts pouring this costly ointment over his feet to anoint them. And all she can do is weep them. And then she even cleans and wipes his feet with her own hair as she is there. And, you know, the Pharisee was ticked off. This offended all of his sensibilities. He's even thinking to himself, I've lost all respect for Jesus to allow an unclean sinner to touch him. Does he not even know his Bible? I love the fact that it tells us Jesus read his thoughts. Jesus says to him, Can I tell you something, Simon? A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, you tell me. Which of them will love him more? Simon's like, well, of course, the one who got the bigger debt paid off will. Jesus said, do you see this woman? I entered your house, Simon. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, customary at the time. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, customary at the time. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven loves little. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying this, Simon, you kind of like me. She loves me. Do you know why? Because you think your sins are this much. And she knows her sins are that much. And as a result, who has more joy in me? Who has more joy in the forgiveness I offer? The reason you're not moved, Simon, is you don't know what kind of sinner you are. Here's the point. The degree to which you see you are a helpless sinner, to that degree, 
God's love will be proved in your heart. And you will be transformed every time you think about what he did at the cross. Now, look at what Christ did. Verse 8, near the end. Christ died for us. Verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood. We already saw that Jesus died. What's new here? Uh, just that his blood is the grounds of our justification. Some of you theological types are thinking, well, I thought we were justified by faith. Yes, we were. This is saying it was a costly justification. The cost of his blood. Something today in our communion service we're going to be remembering and celebrating. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 says that Jesus entered once and for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our redemption. How much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Listen, we must never minimize the blood of Jesus. And I say that because in the last 10, 15 years, I've seen various Christian movements and sometimes denominations and churches kind of embarrassed about this as if, as if it's primitive or it's something that might offend someone or it's uh, we can't relate. We want to be relatable to our neighbors. So we should never bring this. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we can't ever move off this. It's the absolute grounds for our walk with Jesus because when we trusted in Christ and His shed blood to save us, God, the righteous judge, He banged the gavel and He declared justification over you, righteousness over you. And here's why this should assure you. Look at verse 9. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So, we've got this incredible deliverance, I mentioned it, I mentioned. Don't you find it a little odd, though, that in a passage about love, in a passage about God's love, we hear the word wrath? It's kind of a corrective, isn't it? It's kind of a corrective to some of us who love hearing about God's love, to some of us who want to say, I, I want to talk about the love of God, all those other attributes of Him. I, yeah, we, I, the, some of those offend me, some of those bother me. I don't want to deal with them. God's, God is love. True. He is. But you know what? If you actually start submitting yourself to the Bible, you're going to find out God's going to say some things that offend you. He's going to say some things about Himself that you weren't expecting. And when you let God be God, you're going to find out that he chooses to define himself. And he is both loving and merciful, and he is also just. And that justice does include his wrath. Wrath against all sin by a holy God. In fact, I, I, I can't ignore this. Second Thessalonians 1.7 has one of the most shocking pictures of the coming day of wrath. It says that the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven in his blazing fire with his powerful angels will punish those 
who do not walk with God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So how is this a demonstration of love to me, Leo? Notice the rest of verse 9. He's in our passage today. How much more shall we be saved? Paul likes to use that language. How much more? He's going to do it a couple times. How much more shall we be saved through him? It means if he's done the one thing, the other thing is going to be easy. He's saying, look at what Jesus did for you on the cross, bearing the wrath that you deserved. He's done the hardest thing that could ever be done when you were a helpless, ungodly sinner. He's done the hard thing. He was ripped. He was torn. He paid it all. Paul's saying, now if he, if, if he did that, How much more will he be able to take care of you now that he owns you? Now that he has set his love upon you. Paul's like, are you kidding me? The hardest thing's been done. The biggest thing has passed for you. What's going on here in this verse? It's one of the most comforting passages in the bible because what he's saying is you are exempt from the wrath of god so when that lie comes popping back into your head that says the fact that i can't in this moment feel god's love for me means he probably doesn't what do you do you look back and you hold on to the truth of this radical sacrifice and you hold on to the truth of this incredible deliverance and here's the final thing today God has proven his love to me through a complete reconciliation. Look at verse 10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Okay, do you see the cycle? It's starting to get repetitive. One more time, he's going to go through the same thing three different ways. First, what were you? Well... This time he says enemies. That's the strongest of the words so far, I think. He's already used several others to describe what we were without Christ, but this one has some punch. Do you know what enemies implies? Active opposition towards one another. It means we don't want anything to do with him. It actually can appear in, in different ways in some people. For some people, it's just outright contempt for anything to do with Jesus and his gospel. But for other people, it can just be complete indifference. Indifference to Jesus, indifference to his gospel, is good news. It's really referring here to someone who doesn't want to submit to God's rightful lordship over their lives. Let me read half a quote to you. I'll get the other half in a bit. From John Stott, he says this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That is a great summary of what this opposition to God really is. i got to tell you this morning, if God really is 
your creator, that means you belong to him. He has ownership rights of you. He can make demands of you. So when you make decisions for how you're going to live your life, spend your time, establish your truth, you're doing it in complete, and you're doing it in complete uh, independence from him. That's substituting yourself for God. You're putting yourself where only God deserves to be. That was me as a teenager growing up in the church. And if you had met me when I was like 17, you might have thought to yourself, hey, he seems like a really good Christian young man. I was involved. I knew how to say all the right things. I was plugged in and... and I would say to my shame, I had the system figured out. You see, externally, I wasn't doing anything that would cause you to, 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 to question me in any way. But internally, I was a Pharisee. In my heart, I really believed that I was fine. I was not moved by what I'm talking about today. I was not really moved by the cross or by Jesus substituting himself for me because you know why? I was like Simon. I thought if I had sin, yeah, it was about that much. But I was really good at seeing it in others and seeing how big it was over there. And then I heard a message, something like this, and I was leveled. And the gospel for the first time started to grip me. And I saw my need. And as someone once said, you can only cry hallelujah with authenticity after you have first cried, woe is me, for I am lost. Now notice what Christ did. Middle of verse 10. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Reconciliation is what Paul is emphasizing. That's what enemies need. Reconciliation. It's different than justification. Justification is God declaring you righteous. Reconciliation, that's, that's not legal language. That's relational language. That's personal. That's social. That's restored relationship. Do you know what I love about the gospel as you go and you start to get to know God's word. I love how Jesus goes out of his way to solve every spiritual ultimate problem we have. I just made a list of some of the spirit, ultimate spiritual problems we have. Legal problem, justification. Relational problem, reconciliation. Economic problem, co-heirs with Christ. Spiritual immigration problem, citizenship in his kingdom. Family problem, adoption as sons and daughters. Captivity problem, freedom from slavery. Friends, instead of just looking at these powerful words and concepts clinically, 
I'd really rather you hear the voice behind them saying, Hey, how many ways, how many ways do I need to communicate to you how much I love you? How unfailing my love is and my faithfulness is towards you. I quoted John Stott earlier. I gave you half the quote. Here's the actual quote. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. And the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. That's what Jesus did. How does this assure me, Paul? Here's why this should assure you. Look at the end of verse 10. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? There's the how much more setup, by the way. He's saying, if he already has done the one thing, the other thing's going to be easy. If Jesus did all of that for you when you were his enemy, what do you think he's going to do for you now that he calls you friend? And friend, you are. If you have put your faith and trust in Jesus. He's talking right now here when he talks about being saved through his life. He's talking about what Jesus is actually doing right now for you. Interceding for you. Mediating for you. Guiding you. He's going to see you through this life. And he's going to take you to the end. That's why I've always just loved John uh, uh, chapter 10, 27 saying, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. And after reading this, I just want to ask you this passage. Do you really believe Or do you believe now that he has proven his love to you? Do you believe that? Is there something more he should have done for you? To assure you of his love? Because what I see here is that he has proven his love to you with a radical sacrifice and an incredible deliverance and a complete reconciliation. That... Paul ends the passage. If you have your Bible open, just look at his final remarks in verse 11. He says, not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 